Hey, Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for checking out our sermons online. I want to let you know whether this is your first time watching one of our sermons or you're just reviewing a sermon that you've heard here on the campus. I will welcome you, but I do want to let you know we have a core value at Coastal Community Church, and that core value is that you find a local church to be a part of. And so uh, if this, hopefully this sermon series or this sermon is supplementing your spiritual growth, but I want to encourage you to find a, a local church. If you live in the Yorktown, Virginia area, we would love for you to visit us. We have three services, uh, 8 o'clock, 9, 30, and 11, and we meet at 101 Village Avenue. Thank you so much for checking out this sermon online. I hope it encourages your walk and your journey with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, guys. Great to see you. Do me a favor, get your Bible out, all right? We're going to do this series all summer, Above All Christ. We want to lift up Christ throughout the summer, and um, and we want you to exalt Christ both publicly here in corporate worship and privately in your homes and privately in your workplace. Christ above all, above all Christ. And so that's what this letter is really about. The Apostle Paul is encouraging and reminding this new church plant in the city of Colossae that it is Christ above all. So for, uh, Colossians chapter 1 uh, verses 18 to 20 this morning. We're kind of picking our way through this, and we'll be done in uh, the first couple weeks of September. How about that? All right? Uh, so get your note sheet out, and uh, while you're kind of getting ready, uh, any high school seniors here this morning graduating? Stand up. I don't know. It's 8 o'clock. Any? Any? They're still in bed. Nobody? If there's only one, they're like, I'm not standing anywhere. All right, well, I thought I'd recognize them. The student ministry did a great job a couple weeks ago, man. They had a great um, celebration of our seniors. I think we had 15 seniors at that senior night and uh, graduating and moving on. And really, really cool to see the impact that Coastal has had on some of our students as they get ready uh, to go to college. You know, leadership has been, I uh, kind of hinted at this last week, you know, leadership's been kind of one of the big movements uh, in the culture and, and certainly even in church life, you know, this idea of leadership. We need great leadership. And, and while that's true, you know, I think that leadership, like kind of like coaching, right, um, coaches uh, 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 go, you know, they get a lot of credit when things go well and they get... Uh, a lot of negativity when things go poorly. Uh, a lot of y'all probably don't know this. In the NFL, Bill Belichick, the coach of the of New England Patriots, uh, is considered an NFL genius. You know, around NFL circles, he's just brilliant. Uh, but what you don't know is he got fired from the Cleveland Browns, right? It always rem it's remarkable to me how Tom Brady has made him a genius. And... Um, and so, you know, but my point is, any great leader, of course, recognizes that it, it takes a team of people to be great at something, and I think leaders probably get uh, too much credit when things go well, and they probably get too much blame when, when things are not going well. There's so many things in life that are out of every individual's control. And so this morning, uh, we're talking about the leader of the church, uh, and the leader of our church is perfect, and he's a servant, and he does everything well and perfectly well. No, that's not me, okay? It's Jesus Christ is the head of his church, and, and he teaches a servant leadership, and, and, and he gives us the pattern of what we're to do. And so the Apostle Paul focuses on Christ 
And last week we looked at Jesus as being above creation. He, he made it all. He's, he's sovereign, and, and therefore we submit to his rule. But this week we look at Christ and his exaltation over his local church. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul writes this, and he says, And he, Christ, is the head of the body. Now, by the way, the word body is one of the Apostle Paul's most common uses or phrases for the local church. And we're going to park there in a little bit. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's start here this morning, all right, as we unpack these three verses. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Make no mistake about it. He's in charge Jesus is the head. He's the leader. He leads by servant leadership. Jesus died for his church, clothed himself in flesh. He he has the right to rule his church. Jesus defines for us holiness and righteousness. He, He defines for us how the church is to be organized. He defines for us its mission He he tells us how it functions and what it does and what its purposes are. We look to Christ for all of this and his word. It's not up to man to decide the vision of the church. It's not up to man to decide how a church is to be organized. It's been given to us. That's why a couple years ago, if you remember, and if you're new to Coastal, I would probably encourage you to to go, go back and listen to the whole series, but before we relocated from the old building to this building, and I, I knew we would, we'd probably grow, and I, I wanted the, the people that were coming to Coastal at the time to understand how we organized so that there was no shadow of doubt, and so we went through the book of First Timothy, and I would encourage you, if you're new to Coastal, maybe go back and re-listen to that series. It's titled Guarding the Gospel, and we unpack that because, why? Because Jesus told us how to organize the church. And he gave us the vision and the mission and the direction. It's, it's not a mystery to us. Jesus is the head of his church. He, you know, one of the things that so discourages me in the current culture is not the culture out there, but how churches are beginning to redefine the organization of the church and the mission of the church. They're redefining holiness and righteousness all in the name of Christianity, and it makes me physically ill sometimes because we don't have that right. Jesus is the head, and Jesus has defined it for us. Any amens on that? Amen, all right? So if you're coming to Coastal, man, that we're looking to the Scriptures. We're looking to the words of Christ to say, man, this is how we've defined the church. At Coastal, we have a simple vision statement that we hope is memorable. We hope it's scriptural. We've tried to kind of boil it down for us so we can remember as a body of believers. Our goal at Coastal Community Church is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. We want you to be focused on Christ. We want you to follow Him. We want the impact of Christ to impact your marriage and your workplace and your, your finances and your, and your parenting and, and, of course, your involvement in a local church. We say there's three ways at Coastal that we want you to develop as an authentic follower of Christ. Connect, grow, and serve. We want you to connect by making corporate worship a regular in your life. That 45, 50 weeks a year, man, you're a part of corporate worship. And when you miss because you're on vacation, you follow up online and you stay involved corporately with what God is doing in this local church if this is your place of worship. 
But I'm going to tell you something, a lot of people in there in our culture, we attend Coastal, we attend the worship, and that's it. And, and that's just connect at Coastal. Then there's grow. We, we think grow is it's vital that you be in a small group community, that you partner with others in your spiritual growth. And in that small group, you're honest, and you're, you, you share when you need prayer, and you share when you need help. And we do that through small groups. And if you're, you know, we say this, this Developing as authentic followers of Christ is like a three-legged stool, and if you've only got one or two legs, you're missing a part of what God is doing to develop you to be more like Jesus. And so you have to be in a small group. That's where we do that piece. And then there's serve. Connect, grow, and serve. We want you to serve both in a ministry and a mission of Coastal Community Church. We want you to find both a ministry and a mission of Coastal Community Church so that you're developing as a follower, authentic follower, Christ. And so Jesus is the head, and he defines for us what a church is and what its mission is and how it accomplishes its mission and how it organizes. And the church, which is us, right? We talked about it a couple weeks ago when I did a little funny example. Here's the church. Here's Steve Baldwin, all the people. I said, it's bad theology. This is the church, and this is whatever. Okay, it's a building. It's a tool to do ministry. It just doesn't rhyme. And so, you know, but, but the church is us, and it's the body of Christ. And this is a common illustration that the Apostle Paul uses to define the church. The church is the body. So 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually fleshes this out. No pun intended, okay? And so, maybe. And so, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says this about the church body. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. And so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, both Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there is one body. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and this is your home church, you're a part of the body of Christ. You, you have a part to play in what's happening in the ministry of Coastal Community Church. I think there's three things you can pull out of 1 Corinthians 12. Very important. First of all, there's diversity in the body. There's many members and passions and and gifts. And there's a diversity. Yet, while there's diversity, there's also unity. There's, we're one in Christ. And He's the Lord. He's the head. And then the third thing is, there's the interdependence of the body. So there's diversity, there's unity, but there's interdependence that we need one another, right? Have you ever been injured? I've been dealing with a little bit of, of plantar fascia, right? And, you know, and I, I was jogging for a while, and I've had to stop that. But it's crazy to me how, you know, one little ligament can stop you from doing what you want to do, right? And, and, and I think that's why Paul uses this, this idea of interdependence. That if, you know, the eye, Paul said, can't say to the hand, I don't need you. 
So sometimes we, we, look, we get irritated in the church body and we look around the room, man, that person this or that person that. But what we fail to recognize is, yes, every person has weaknesses, but also every person has strengths. Every person has a part to play. Every person's important. You know, last week I was, it was fascinating to me to watch the church body and watch people that, that are passionate about what they do. And if you weren't here, we, with something, we took a power surge or a lightning strike or something and it fried some of our circuits and we got them up and running this week. But, you know, I our coffee area wasn't working, and so we were just intending not to do coffee, but the volunteers were like, no, you know what? We're going to have coffee. They went to another part of the, of, the, of the building, and they made the coffee, and it was just, a, it was hard, it was difficult on them, but they did it. Why? Because they're serious about serving the church body. Either that or anticipating a really boring sermon, or like people are going to People are going to eat coffee this morning. I don't know what it is, but, but I love that about Coastal and people here, man. You guys take your ministry so serious. Why? Because we need one another. You know, one of the things that I've done over the last few years is, is I've shared the pulpit more. And, and I get the ribbing, you know, when I'm not preaching. And people go, like, you got the week off, you know. But, but one of the things I wanted to prep Coastal for is, is the Coastal's not dependent on the senior pastor. It's dependent on the Word of God. And I wanted you guys to get used to other people preaching the Word of God. So if Pastor Sean steps out and gets hit by a bus this morning, Coastal keeps going, Right? Okay, so like, somebody said amen, all right? Like, I don't want to get hit by a bus. I'm just saying, I was trying to develop the sense of body and interdependence, right? And, and that man, the coastal, coastal is built on Christ as the head and His Word. It doesn't matter who delivers the Word, that it's being preached and it's being preached accurately, and, and, and man, we can keep moving. Why? Because we're a part of the body. Listen, the New Testament knows nothing of a church attender. It's, it's kind of a, a new cultural thing, right? Especially in a culture where um, there's no persecution, which I'm thankful for, but be, when there's no persecution, it makes um, Christianity maybe a little bit lighter, a little bit easier to be a part of. And, and some of that I think we've developed in America, the kind of this, I'm an attender, and the, and the New Testament doesn't really know anything about that. There's no part of the body that you don't need, right? The, the, uh, if you're here and this is your local church, you've got a part to play. We need you to be a part. We need you to, to find a place to fit in and, and use your talent and use your time and use your passions and, and use your gifting. And I think sometimes we see the church functioning and we're like, oh man, I guess there's no spot for that. That's not true. Listen, if you want to serve, we have places for you to serve. I'm going to give you a great on-ramp, okay? Here's a great on-ramp. If you've kind of been attending Coastal for a while, you're like, you know what I do want to get involved? It's our We Are Coastal class, okay? Now, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say we just had one a week or so ago, and our next one is going to be in September. We generally don't do them in the summer because so many people are away. It's hit or miss, all right? So, but, but if you're interested in attending that class, put that on the tear-off today. Drop it in the box, and we'll keep you on the list and make sure we stay up to date. But it's our We Are Coastal class. That's how you get on and get involved at Coastal Community Church. Why? Because we're a body. The third thing Paul tells us, Jesus is the source of the church. He says he's the beginning. Jesus started the church. And because he started it, he's, he's going to see it through to completion. Apart from Christ, there's, there's no church. In fact, the first mention of the word church is in Matthew 16. You probably know the story, right, where um, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say they am? They give different answers. And then finally Peter chimes in. And he says, man, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the special one sent from God. 
And, and Jesus responds to Peter this way in Matthew 16. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, when you're a part of the church, you're a part of something that's going to succeed. Isn't that great news? All right? The church is going to make an impact. The church is going to save those who God intended to be saved, and you get to be a part of it. I always say the church is on an Easter egg hunt. We have to find those who God has already intended to save. Isn't that great news? He's going to do it. We don't have to do it. You can't mess it up. We're going to talk about evangelism in the fall. I want you guys to be on evangelism, sharing the gospel with your neighbors. But at the end of the day, it's not pass-fail. God's already saved them. We just get to be the heralds of the gospel. Isn't that great news? Okay, and so why? So he's going to see it through. He's the source of the church. Jesus is also the hope of the church. Jesus' resurrection is the hope of the church. Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead. I, I saw you all as we were singing that song. I saw you all, some of y'all getting really excited as we were singing about the resurrection of Christ. And that should excite you, right? Because the grave doesn't have final say over the children of God. Jesus does. He's the first fruit of a great resurrection that one day is going to happen. And I can't wait until my faith and your faith becomes sight, right? He's the first fruits of that great day. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? And oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus is the one with the victory. So we, the church in Christ, get to join with a shout of joy over death. Death does not have final say over the children of God. Jesus is the hope of the church. Jesus is also the central, Jesus' gospel, also the central focus of the church. Paul said that in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Now, I know at first blush, this sounds really simple and obvious, but I want to tell you something. The church loses its way on this. It's usually a slippery slope, and it's usually over time. Most churches don't get up one day and focus on something other than Christ, but it does happen. And it, it's usually the exchange of, of the good for the best. We lessen it. The best is to uplift Christ and His gospel. But then one day, the churches begin to, to exchange just the good of the gospel. I went a couple, I told you guys this a couple weeks ago when I was all spun up. Um, I guess I can get spun up today, but uh, when I was all spun up and I did a wedding at uh, a Methodist church here in the community, and when I went in to do the wedding, it was a coastal wedding, coastal members wedding, but they were using that building. So there was a member of this church, it was on a Sunday afternoon, the member of this church was um, there to, you know, open the building for us and get the microphones and all that working. And so when I was meeting the member of the church, I was like, uh, man, how was your services today? I asked this member, and they were like, it was great. We celebrated Earth Day. I didn't even know it was Earth Day. I was like, oh. I was like, well, ours was great too. We celebrated Jesus, you know? And so, like, and listen, like, and, and listen, the culture's pressuring the church to celebrate things other than Jesus. And I'm not trying to be too hard on this particular church, but I'm like, man, how did you lose Jesus somewhere along the way? 
And it's happening, and it's happening in our mainline denominations. I'm not here to call them all down, but man, the church has to capture the idea that we are, Jesus is preeminent. He gives abundant life, and he gives eternal life when we repent and believe in him. We can never lose the gospel. And churches do that. And they do it usually around what I would call social justices, right? And Coastal has some of those. And we should do some of those. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ, right? We, we do a food ministry. And we give away food. Why do we do that? Because we want to introduce people. We want to give people breads with the hope of introducing them to the bread of life, right? And we support VBJI, which is a justice initiative that helps women rescued from sex trafficking, we have some advocates in our body that are helping these women get back on their feet. And, but we do that with the hope of inter, introducing these women to the gospel of Jesus. And we support CareNet, which saves the unborn or the preborn. And we should do that, but it's with the hope of introducing people to Jesus. I could go on and on. Lackey Free Clinic Medicine, and ESOL, Teaching English. All of these things are with the purpose of introducing people to Jesus. We could speak, I could get up here and preach, and a lot of churches get bogged down in politics. And, you know, I make some political statements, but I only do that because I want you to know how the gospel touches your vote. And it does touch your vote. But, man, at the end of the day, our focus is not on politics, our focus is on Christ. Christ and his gospel must be preeminent in the church. Yes, Coastal? That's what we're going to focus on. That's what we're going to focus on. There's going to be times where the, the culture is going to push us to do otherwise. We're going to focus on Christ. Paul says Christ is preeminent. Now, Paul is transitions here in, from verse 18 to verse 20 about how Jesus reconciles or makes things that used to be enemies with God, now friends with God. But before he does that, he, he kind of comes back. And by the way, a lot of scholars think that uh, the, the last week's sermon and this week's sermon, these verses we've been covering, are, is actually like a song or a poem probably that he's borrowing, but there's a little bit of debate about that. Okay, and so... Uh, and so Paul now transitions with the deity, comes back, we talked about this last week, the deity of Jesus. Colossians 1.19 where he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to, to, well, to dwell. Paul's saying that, that Jesus is God in flesh. And this is no small matter. We're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. We're talking about Jesus. So there's the mystery of the Trinity, and there's the mystery of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, but Jesus is God in flesh. I love Matthew 3, where Jesus was baptized to obey the will of his Father and identify with humanity. And and so as he's baptized in Matthew 3, 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately when he went up out of the water, Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven. How cool would that be, right? Like, you know you're something when you get baptized, and all of a sudden the heavens open up and start declaring things, right? A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's an amazing thing, right? Wouldn't you like to have been there? I want you to think about this, because here's what I'm trying to get at, this, this close, special relationship between our Heavenly Father and His one and only Son. God the Father was pleased to dwell in Christ. You know, it's that time of year, right? It's graduation. Some of y'all have been to some, or you're about to go to some. You, know, you go to graduation, it's, cr- it's always crazy to me. You know, you have a graduation of three to five hundred kids, and 
You know, about a third of the parents can't sit quietly when their kid walks across stage, right? And so the the kid goes across, like, yeah, way to go, woo, you know, and then the next one comes across, and, and if, if, if that doesn't get under control, like, each group thinks they got to outdo the last one, right? And, you know, if you didn't, it, you know, I don't live near my family, so we don't always have a huge group at my kids' graduation, so it's like, man, we have to be really loud to outdo that last group. They had 40 people here, you know, and so it gets louder, and then, you know, woo and I'm like, it's fifth grade graduation, like, really? Like, we get... But we can't contain ourselves around our kids, right? You're just so proud, and you, you know, your kid does something great, you just can't wait to tell people. And that's what I love about Matthew 3, because it's like, it's like God the Father, it's like he can't contain himself. Hey, just so you know, this is my kid, all right? Listen to him. I'm pleased in him. And that's what I love about Colossians 1 verse 19, where it, God in flesh, Jesus, God was pleased to dwell with him, the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father, like a proud dad, reminds us of his love for his son, and there's this intimate relationship within the Trinity where the Son of God submits to the will of the Father to save and to rescue fallen man. He's just, he, he's, there's this intimate, close relationship. It was funny, last week when I was preaching a little bit on the Trinity, I had someone come up to me after the service, and they, they were asking about the mystery of the Trinity. Like, how can God be one and three? And I'm like, I don't know, but here's what I do know. There are some truths that we can take away from the doctrine of the Trinity that apply to our lives. Like, there's, there's no other God on planet earth that displays love. You want to know why? There's no other God on earth that other, other religions worship that have an equal. So if you have no equal, you never have to display love. I want you to think about that. At the core of Islam is Allah. Allah is a being in and unto himself. There's no equal, so it's no wonder that you, and by the way, the psalmist teach this, right? You become like the idol that you worship. So whatever your heart's idolatry is, you be, so if your idol is cruel, you're going to become cruel. If, you're, if your idol is sexually promiscuous, you're going to become sexually promiscuous. But if, you're, if what you worship is loving, you're going to become loving. Does that make sense? And so the doctrine of Trinity is critical to us because our God has an equal in His Son, and therefore He is a God who is loving. And so as we worship Him, what should that make us? It's not a sure question, right? As we worship our God, who is righteous, we should grow in what? Righteousness, right? As we worship our God, who is merciful, we should grow in what? We worship a God who's humble, who emptied himself and took on flesh, so that should make us what? Humble, right? You see how you grow to be like the God that you worship. Our God the, the Son submitted to the will of the Father. So what does that teach us? That su- su- functional submission is a good thing, not a bad thing. So when the Scriptures call us to submit to the government, to submit to one another, for wives to submit to their husbands, children to submit to their parents, 
churches to submit to their elders and pastors. Like, I could go on, like, all these things spin up the culture, but our God has taught us that in holiness and righteousness done appropriately, these are good things, not things to be rebelled against, because if you, sub- if you buck against certain structures of submission, what do you end up with? Chaos. That's the kind of the world we're living in, Yes. So there's this intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and He's on a rescue mission, God in flesh rescuing, or, or, or as we'll look at in just a moment, reconciling, br- bringing back together that which was broken when He took on flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this about Christ, and by the way, it's, it's a, this is an exhortation to the church to, to have the mindset that Christ had. And so we're to, we're to adopt, again, you become like the God that you worship, right? We're to adopt the mindset of Christ, where Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in other words, when you worship Christ, you become like Christ, who though he was in the form of God, guess what he didn't do? He didn't count equality with God, something to be held on to so tightly and claim his rights. Rather, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, with whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, with whom God the Father thundered his approval from heaven. Jesus humbled himself. Why? In order to reconcile us back to himself. So I want you to see the progression. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the fullness of God in whom God was pleased to dwell, but he humbled himself, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How did he make peace? By the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ made peace for us by the blood of the cross. In fact, Paul's like, uh, Paul is making the point here that Jesus is reconciling all things back to himself. Reconciliation, by the way, means taking an enemy and making them your friends. Jesus, first of all, he's reconciling his church, okay? He's reconciling believers. For the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because I've preached so many sermons on this, but you're not, in, apart from Christ, you're not in a neutral position with God. The scriptures are clear. We're, we're enemies with God apart from Christ. We're in rebellion and we're sinners. Jesus here, Paul's saying that Jesus is reconciling the church. It's not universalism, by the way. Some people point to this verse. Everybody goes to heaven. The Bible clearly does not teach that, okay? Jesus is reconciling his church. Those who were once enemies and deserved the wrath of God have been saved from the wrath of God by Christ's obedience on the cross, where God poured out his wrath 
and hatred on sin on his one and only son so that you would not need to bear it on your own so that when we call ourselves what God calls us sinners in rebellion to him and we believe in his son with whom he's well pleased, okay, then the inheritance of Christ is gifted to us as we're grafted into the family by grace through faith. All the inheritance that belongs to Jesus is he's going to share it with you. Cool, huh? What did Jesus say on the cross, by the way? He said, his final words were, it is what? So here's the question. If it's finished, why is life still so hard? You ever had that question? Like, I thought it was really, really finished. No, it's in the process of, of finishing as well. So while he bore all the wrath, there was no more, no more payment for sin that needed to be done. When he rose from the dead, he, dead, he authenticated his claims as being the Messiah. There's nothing more that we add or subtract to our salvation. He's done it all. But the actual victory is still in process. I'll give you a great example. Anybody know what we celebrated or remembered on June the 6th? This week, June 6th, anybody know? 1944 was what? D-Day, right? Huge, huge ally victory. Kind of surprised Hitler and his forces on which beach we actually landed on. We landed on several beaches. Of course, Omaha Beach was the worst where we took over 2,000 young boys, lost their lives as we took this beachhead, this little piece of ground. You know, and on that particular day, I think it was almost 200,000 troops, both parachute and, and amphibious, landed. And, and, you know, we took this this tiny little beachhead. And really, in some ways, you could have shouted that day, it is finished. Well, how is it finished if we just took a beachhead? Because it was strategic and it was important, right? May 8th, one year later, was what? Anybody know? V-Day, right? Victory in Europe. Took about a little less than a year to make sure to free Europe. But that day, D-Day, was essential victory. If those allied forces not been successful that day, history would be radically different right now, right? So it is finished. It's D-Day. Jesus did the hard work, but now, okay, Jesus is in the process of crushing all of his enemies. And what are the enemies of the kingdom of God? Anybody know? It's the world, the what? The flesh, and what else? The devil, world, the flesh, and the devil are three enemies of your Christian faith. So the world, this is the idea of philosophies, thinking, wisdom, you know, it's, 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 it's the pushback. We're, we're in a post-Christian worldview right now. I hope you know that. You don't, you don't live in a Christian culture anymore. You're in a post-Christian culture. And so, so we have to think and Jesus is crushing the influences of the world. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The cross is foolishness to lost people. The gospel is foolishness to lost people. 
The only way a lost person is saved, John chapter 3, is when the Holy Spirit shows up and takes the blinders off. Our job is to present the gospel, but the cross crushes the thinking of the world. It's foolishness. Jesus makes wise the foolish. Number two, the flesh, our sin nature, right? Sin has earned us something, Romans 6. For the wages of sin is what? It's death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ has defeated this enemy by paying for the penalty of sin and rising from the dead, triumphing over death itself. Death is conquered by death, essentially, 1 Corinthians 15. And finally, Jesus defeats the devil, the third enemy of the Christian faith. The cross defeats the devil. Romans 16, verse 20, the apostle Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love when the words grace, peace, and crush are used in the same verse, right? It just seems like a little bit of an irony there. And by the way, notice the means of the crushing. The God of peace And how do we have peace with God? Through the cross, where the wrath of God was satisfied. We pour down for sin. We repent of our sin. We believe in the gospel. We now have peace with God, okay? And so now we have peace with God, and this peaceful God is crushing the enemy, Satan, under your feet. Where in the New Testament is feet used? Over and over and over. It's used in those who are bringing the good news of the gospel to others. And so we are a part of the victory that Jesus is bringing when we as a church hold true to the preeminence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we present this gospel to others. We are a part of defeating Satan. Isn't that good news? By the way, parents, I'm going to tell you something. If you want to make sure your children are defeating the enemies of Christ, the kingdom of God, and Christianity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the most important thing you can give them is the gospel. Make sure they understand it. Make sure you're teaching them. Make sure you're testifying to them that Christ is the victor. Finally, this morning, I want you to see this. Jesus is in the process of restoring the earth itself. Jesus is in the process of restoring the earth. The earth itself has been broken and ravaged by sin. And so when we see a natural disaster, right, an earthquake or devastating hurricane, and we, and we see these and we wonder, right, if you're like me, you have questions. And, and I don't have all the answers completely, but I do know they're the result of the brokenness of sin, that even the earth itself, when Adam and Eve sinned, was subjected to this brokenness. Now, a lot of times a, a preacher, a, a particular preacher will get up and, you know, a city's ravaged by a, a particular natural devastation, and, and he'll get up and declare that it's a particular sin of which a, a particular city is being punished for. And I, I always wonder, like, how do you know that? I, I I don't know that. And can God use disaster to remind us of our mortality and our need for the gospel? Of course He can, right? And there's good that can come out of natural disaster, but man, it's head-scratching to me. But what I do know that is that as we present the gospel and we look forward to the return of Christ, even the earth will be restored. Romans 8, 19 says this, for the creation 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So in other words, as the gospel goes forward and the elect are saved, the, the earth is waiting for that day. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But in hope, the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corrupt, uh, from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The earth itself is waiting for the return of Christ and its return where it will be finalized, where the children of God will inherit the new earth, which is waiting to house them on the day when they are all finally revealed. Man, that gets me excited. It gets me excited about what we're doing as a church. We're in the process of seeing our faith become sight in the day when Jesus finally returns. I want to finish with this this morning, and I've used this illustration before, but I love, love, love this poem when we talk about peace and reconciliation. The year was 1864, and, um, <clears throat> and one of America's greatest poets, a guy by the name of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he, he had just been through a, a very, very difficult stretch in his life. In fact, a couple years earlier, he, uh, before he wrote this poem, his wife Fanny had, had tragically died in a freak accident where her dress caught fire by a candle nearby, and, and she later died from the burn wounds. Now Longfellow lived in a country ravaged by civil war, where Vicksburg and, and Gettysburg were fresh on the mind of all in the country that had pitted brother against brother, even father against son. This, this war ravaged from Mississippi to Maine. And now it was Christmas time when Longfellow wrote this, song, this poem, and, and, and he's thinking about the many of the young men who didn't even return home from Christmas. And in fact, Longfellow himself, he, he was in his Cambridge, Massachusetts home, and he, he was pondering this broken country in which he lived. And, and here he spent Christmas as a widower, and he spent Christmas nursing his own son Charles back to health, who had been struck by a Confederate bullet in the Battle of New Hope Church. It was Christmas Day, and Longfellow sat in his house contemplating the darkness in the world in which he lived. And then he heard the local church bells begin to ring out a Christmas carol. Now, church bells, this was before Facebook, right, and marketing. This was how you marketed as a church, right? You rang the bells in your town. So Longfellow, as he heard this Christmas song, he struggled with the message of the angels as they brought on Christmas morning, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And so Longfellow picked up a pen, and ever the poet, he wrote this poem, which we've now transferred into a Christmas song. He wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet these words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And I thought as the day had come, the belfries of Christianum had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. They're ringing, singing on its way. The world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime, oh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And now the, the, po the poem shifts to 
the curse of civil war, and he writes about the cannon fire. He says, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made the forlorn and the houses born of peace of earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head, and I said, There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. His poem doesn't end there because he changes to his hope of the resurrection. He says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Listen, peace is not a sadistic joke. Peace with God and the peace of God can only be found in the gift of God, His one and only Son, who brings forgiveness, who brings salvation, brings eternal life, brings peace on earth, and goodwill to men. That's the message that Coastal must always lift up, because Christ is preeminent. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Paul's words to us this morning. And they're the reminder to us that we do have peace. We have peace with God. As Christ has reconciled us back to the Father through his person and his work. Father, for the one in this room that doesn't know peace, they look at the world around them and it looks like a, some kind of tragedy, God. May they know that Christ is working peace, crushing his enemies. They don't yet know you as Savior, God. Maybe today's the day. Today's the day to say, you know what? I'm done living my own way. Today I want to reconcile with my maker through his son Jesus that I may know peace with God, peace with others. And it's in Christ's name I pray.